0: This podcast is brought to you by BioCeuticals Clinical Services, bridging the gap between modern genetics and nutrition. Welcome to FXOmics with Dr. Mark Donoghue, your gateway to genetics, research and technology in the field of personalized medicine. Hi and welcome today to Alessandra Edwards, naturopath, clinical nutritionist and Bachelor of Health Sciences in Herbal Medicine. She's now taking her expertise in genomics and her training from her own practice into the area of precision medicine for optimizing health and performance. Welcome Alessandra, it's good to talk with you. How are you going?
1: Great, we finally have a little bit of sunshine here in Melbourne today, so I'm,
0: I'm feeling good and happy. Oh, sunshine in Melbourne isn't as rare as I once thought it was. Now, tell me a little bit about yourself. I've I've read part back, going back in your history a bit. You come from naturopathy, clinical nutrition, and uh, medical herbalism, and. As far as I can read it, you've started in the area we all do of looking after sick and suffering patients, and you've taken some of the newer technologies and are moving into high performance. Can you tell me a bit about your past?
1: Yes, exactly. So uh, as you said, that that's my background, so very much a clinical background in nutrition and uh, integrated naturopathy. And uh, I uh, really worked for um, 10 years uh, specializing in uh, chronic mental health and gastrointest- gastrointestinal health. Conditions wow. And uh, my particular interest through the years uh, really focused on uh, helping those patients that um, had uh, done the rounds in terms of seeing both um, uh, alive and uh, traditional medical practitioners and still were not finding answers to their complex uh, symptom picture. Yeah. And uh, so I feel like that's really where I honed my um, investigative uh, skills. Uh, which then uh, through the years really got translated into this passion of um, uh, what I call the DNA of performance.
0: And like most of us, you started trying to get the gut right. It sounds like the gastrointestinal tract is a starting point for almost all of us in getting people back to a level of health that they can sustain.
1: Yes, absolutely, and uh, particularly uh, uh, detecting um undetected infections uh that, that became uh, uh you know my, my particular focus of interest um because I found that uh very often generalized strategies were given to the patient and, and general sort of um you know gut repair protocols and um the patients would initially uh feel slightly better, particularly when going on elimination diets or um, you know, what I call sort of the mono diet, um, you know, sort of mm. the paleo and, and gaps and sort of those kinds of diets. Uh, so they would feel initially better, but then invariably the original symptoms will come back and often with the vengeance and uh, then with other associated symptoms, so mental health disturbances and uh, more and more food intolerances. And um, what I found was they're actually going back to basics and having. Uh, really accurate case-taking and really taking the time to do all the necessary testing very often reveal uh, revealed a, a number of um, co-infections at gut level, and uh, which, which often had, had been left um, undiagnosed.
0: Meaning more bacterial, parasitic, viral? Or do you have a kind of yeah, take on... Right. What was mm. what were you finding mainly on your testing? Um,
1: so often I was finding that um, even a previous diagnosis of parasites like um, you know blastocystis or the um were usually enough to give um, you know for the previous. Previous practitioner to give a, a, a standard protocol, right. um, but what was left was the the you know the diagnosis of other coexisting infections such as small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, for example, or mm. you know uh, or, or you know parasites such as helicobacter pylori uh, further up the uh, the digestive tract. And so what happened is that the strategy basically focused on putting the eggs on one basket. And, um and concentrated on the uh, eradication of these parasites without really considering the upstream um, triggers uh, yeah. that perhaps um, cause the patient to uh, have a parasitic infection in the first place and so um and then you know from there also looking at um you know the, the specific relationship between certain genetic tendencies, for example, as well as doing sort of a broader omics approach in terms of, you know, microbiome screening and and looking at the um, susceptibility of an individual to be able to either, um, uh, you know, resolve the parasitic infection or to be able to uh, happily uh, and healthily coexist with this parasite.
0: So just tell me, I mean, you raised SIBO uh, there a moment ago. It's come from nowhere to being a very commonly diagnosed condition now. how How do you see that? Is that because the technology is there to test successfully and to understand it? Has it been something that's always there, or is it a consequence of, say, antibiotic use in childhood? What do you have a take on from the stories and the histories you took? what predisposes to SIBO, what predisposes to the parasitic infections, and how you work through those. A bit of an order, just clinically, about how you work through from one to the other.
1: Sure. So to answer your uh, first question, uh, in terms of why is it that now it seems so many people have this diagnosis of SIBO, I think that, um, first of all, the testing has become more widely um, available, um, also, not just to medical practitioners, but also to complementary practitioners. Mm-hmm. I think also that there is uh, an increased awareness of of the uh, of this condition, and so there is more um, more frequent screening for it. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the uh, uh, predisposition, I think that. Um, you know first and foremost the um, misuse and overuse of uh, proton pump inhibitors uh, over the last um, 20 years uh, has had much to um, you know ha- has much to do basically with the increase in yeah. uh, the prevalence of, of sibo. Um, I think that uh, also we are born with um, defective microbiomes uh, and this is going to have um, a a huge impact on increasing the risk of a child being exposed to uh, antibiotics early on. Mm. I think this also has to do with um, the um, you know, the lack of support for breastfeeding, uh, generally speaking. So if you like all the practices that are going to be helping foster um, a, uh, a healthy uh, microbiome in the the first three to four formative years, I think really ha- have a lot to do with that. Um, I think that also we um, have uh, higher ratios of, uh, high, sorry, higher percentage of stress um, in younger and younger patients. And um, um, this is really affecting our neurology and so how um, you know the, the, the vagus nerve is working and so how this is going to impact um, the ability to digest well and have good quality hydrochloric acid, the motility in the gut. Um, and, uh, um, and, and I think that this is having a huge impact.
0: That vagus nerve is a tricky one, isn't it? The the gut brain and the brain brain and the similarities of permeability between brain, you know, the blood brain barrier and the gut permeability. There's a whole thing going on there. How much? How much of that do you reckon has to do with dietary changes? The kind of increase in sugars in the diet, transgenerationally. How much do you think? was always there and we just dismissed it as, well, that's behavioural changes in kids, what can you do about it? Well, In other words, was it always there and we were just not paying attention? Or is this something that the at least PPIs in adulthood, but not so much in kids, although the babies do get it as well, how much can you put to diet, how much to the environment, and how much to increased attention to this kind of problem?
1: Look, that's a great question, and I wish I had um, sort of an evidence-based answer, you know, based on actual figures. Yeah. So um, what I'm going to do is basically give you my my opinion. Yeah. Um, I, um, I I think that, um, you know, diet is definitely Uh, huge. However, it's definitely not the only uh, contributing factor because when you look at data from the 1950s, we were definitely consuming vast amounts of sugar back then. Um, So I don't think that um, that you know we can really put it down all or, or to sugar. And I, and I think that sort of carbohydrates have become a little bit of um, you know, a, a bit of a scapegoat and and the target of a you know massive witch hunt where, whereas I think that um, the the crux of it is a lot more complex than that. Um, I'm not denying that overall we are eating more poorly and our nutrient density is uh, decreasing year in year out. However, I think that the picture is much more complex and um, has to do with the impoverishment of our microbial diversity uh, through the decades, uh, and this is due to a number of factors, some of which I mentioned earlier, so um, increased in civilian rates, um, the impoverishment, Impoverishment of um, the uh, microbiome diversity in pregnant mothers and poor uh, and inagu- inadequate uh, practices to foster that microbiome in pregnancy. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, reduced rates of um, vaginal deliveries and um, uh, prolonged breastfeeding, increased use of antibiotics. Um, I think also uh, from a broader perspective, even school practices. So I I have a five-year-old son and I'm constantly shocked, even though he he goes to a really great school, but I'm constantly shocked by uh, the lack of um, focus that is placed on um, uh, the time that they're allowed to read. So they are uh, literally forced to gulp down their food uh, so that they can run off and play. Mm-hmm. And and so I think that uh, and also you know even down to the fragmentation of the family unit. You know we've got stats to show that now in Australia, um, you know we're, we're not far behind the UK, which has got really terrible rates of uh, family centred um, uh, meal times at the table. So we know that we are. We're eating faster. We're eating more poorly, and we're distracted when we're eating. So, all these things are also going to have an impact on um, the, uh, you know, the gut-brain interaction, as you were saying earlier. Our ability to produce digestive enzymes to break down proteins and nutrients, which then are going to, you know, end up in the colon um, and, um, you know, affecting um, the increase of certain. Uh, Microbes, which are then are going to produce pro-inflammatory uh, metabolites, and this is going to have an effect upstream on the, you know, the gut motility. So I think it's a really complex issue. Yeah, and in terms of how I go about, in terms of my um, uh, you know my treatment strategy and, and where I start, um, more often than not, I do start with the data unless there is really significant mental health presentation, in which case, I I really feel strongly that that should be uh, the priority.
0: Yeah,
1: but uh, first and foremost, basically, is identifying any infections, and as I mentioned earlier, um, working out. Uh, whether there are any um, issues related to vagal tone and motility, and how this also relates to their genetic uh, predisposition to underproduce certain neurotransmitters such as serotonin, that are going to have an impact on their gut motility.
0: Right. So you do genetics. So there are two genomes. Either there's the human genome and the susceptibility genes. And then there's the whole genome of the gastrointestinal tract, which modifies mm-hmm. so much of what we do yeah. with diet and nutrition. Do you okay. have a kind of favorite mechanism or methods of testing? So on the genomic side, do you look for susceptibilities like the DQ2 and 8, the celiac type genes, methylation yeah. genes? So you do yeah. that? And yeah. what what do you do to understand where the microbiome is? What's happening in the gut? What is your favored testing for both pathogens and normality I suppose.
1: Yeah so I use a number of different tests and um, um, so I'm not saying that sort of um, you know this particular test I use is, is the best or, or rather than the other tests I've mentioned are not good enough it's just the one that I found to be um, very comprehensive. So uh, if there is a history of gastrointestinal issues where I suspect that um, function is also impaired, then I, um, I'm quite partial to utilizing um, the Genova GI effects because um, it looks at the number of markers and not just um, right. uh, the microbiome. So we can see basically if there is um, protein mild digestion, um, if um, inflammatory markers are elevated, if markers of allergies are uh, are present, if there is steatorrhea and what level of fat malabsorption is present. Okay. Um, um, and then looking at the microbiome, but I also use a number of other microbiome-specific tests such as, um, um, such as U-biome and uh, also more recently, a, um, a, a new test has just become available um, in uh, uh, in Australia. Uh, although the name escapes me right now, um, I've only used it three times so far. But that they will come back to me in a minute. Um, so that's from the, uh, the the gut perspective. But I is, also... it, is it are these
0: tests that look for microbial diversity, or are they uh, kind of very specific for the genome signatures of particular you know? Um, major species of bacteria what what's the kind yeah. of hallmark so of will, these tests?
1: Will, Yeah, so they will look at uh, uh um, you know general phyla and right. then also particular um particular species uh rather than individual strains right. and so um and so within that uh also um you know i can identify whether uh you know specific species of uh of microorganisms and um um potential contributors to an overall <clears throat> uh inflammatory picture. Mm. So for example, high levels of E. coli, for example. Right. Um, yeah, um and so that that's one aspect. The other aspect though is actually identifying these biotic pathogens <clears throat> as well, such as Cortella, for example, Citrobacter. Uh, and so that basically um I, I find that really useful as a navigating tool because Um, it basically uh, allows me to think in terms of how much damage control do I need to uh, be mindful of here or if they have dysborrotic bacteria, um, is there enough diversity here and um, enough numbers uh, of beneficial bacteria that uh, it basically buys me a little bit of a safety margin in terms of Mm. utilising antimicrobials, for example. Or um, does it mean that... um, Instead of utilizing antimicrobials, we utilize instead a uh, microbiota restoration strategy with specific prebiotics and, and strain-specific probiotics, which then are going to overall alter um, the gut ecosystem so that um you know certain certain bacteria that are considered um, opportunistic, like streptococci, for example, then you know, in that case, I wouldn't need to use antimicrobials, right. we, we would just be looking at the microbiota modification and dietary modification.
0: There's there are some people who seem almost bulletproof, even with pathogens in the gut, almost no matter what the diet, they seem hmm. to roam on through. What is it about individual susceptibility? What is it about the host, whether that's genome or? Have you identified things that make some groups more susceptible that you can kind of separate out on either, say, genomic testing or metabolic testing? Mm-hmm. Is there any way mm-hmm. of picking out the vulnerable?
1: Um, well, there definitely there is, and even without utilising, um, you know, genomic testing, uh, a good clinician will have a very good understanding of um the vul- the vulnerability susceptibility of of the patient even just doing very very good um you know medical screening medical history and clinical history there will yeah. be certain patterns that we're looking for um, in terms of uh, you know uh whether born premature for example um, did their mother or you know grandmother already have uh, a history of um, digestive issues? Were they ever diagnosed with um, things such as IBS, for example? What's the antibiotic history as a child? Were they often ill uh, as a child? And so you basically you start seeing a little right. bit of a pattern, yeah. Um, in terms of um, identifying actual. Um, you know, uh, genes or biomarkers—that that really is the area where a lot of personalised um, medicine and and the area called future sciences is actually uh, working on. So, um, I I've attended a number of lectures by uh, Professor Michael Snyder, who's the chair of um, the Department of Genetics at Stanford University, and um, you know he basically says that the focus at the moment and has been over the last few years, is on analyzing big data so as to come up with an accurate, um, reliable and reproducible equation that could ideally be predictive um, from DNA sequence as well as any environmental exposure as to what sort of health outcome we can expect. So, um, for example, by having his full genome sequenced. And um, utilizing wearable technology that is constantly measuring his cytokine levels um, and um, you know other biomarkers, he was able to find out that um, he had a very high risk of diabetes. And when you look at him, you just could never tell because he's you know very fit and uh, and slim, and uh, and also pinpoint with incredible accuracy whether he's about to come down with a virus within ten days without oh. having any symptoms. So at the moment... Using
0: genetic testing, so knowing his susceptibilities, yeah. or is this predictive kind of metabolomics that he's talking
1: about? Both, both. Oh. So this is utilizing big data in terms of genomics wow. and, and metabolomics. So looking at you know, all the different biomarkers that, you as know, a doctor, for example, you would test, um through blood but having this continuous monitoring um and he tells this incredible story of when he was on a on a flight and because he knew exactly what his um oxygen saturation levels um normally were both on fl- on flight and you know on land he knew by the difference in percentage in drops um in uh, um in uh, you know, in this marker, that he was actually coming down with something. Wow. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. And so uh, this, is, this is in its infancy, but this is absolutely the future of medicine. And there, is, um, there are a lot of uh, uh, technological companies that are really working to develop this kind of wearable technology whereby this data is then going to be constantly fed. Um, through highly sophisticated machines, and, and give you a very accurate uh, picture right. of you know how well you are, whether something is happening.
0: They have the coolest toys at Stanford. I mean, they're just in the right area of the world to be able to use those technologies. From right. the user's perspective, at the other end, big data is overwhelming, to, especially to a doctor. We, you know, we're trained in that mm. diagnosis, working down a diagnostic, narrowing it the whole way. Mm rather than doing what big data does, expand the information base until you see patterns emerging. And it, it does seem to be the way of the future that we'll be using tools, um, technologies, data from the Genome Project. We'll be using all of those, but someone has to make sense of it because it can be overwhelming, as I'm sure you would have felt as a practitioner when people oh. walk in, dump 400 pages on your, <laughs> on your table and say, that's my <laughs> genome, why am I sick? It doesn't work out that way yet. Um, those technologies sound like they're the, they're the future. Do you use any of those? Are they applicable in clinical practice yet?
1: No, definitely, definitely not, not yet. Other than I use, I do use heart rate variability wearables right. um, because uh, they have been found to be um, very accurate and predictive, and, and um, particularly because I work in the <clears throat> in the field of cognitive performance. Right. Uh, so I work with senior leaders and teams where cognitive performance, working memory, ability to concentrate, are prized above all else. Um, so, and heart rate variability has been shown to be a very reliable tool um in terms of predicting mm. someone's performance on the day. <clears throat> so I do use that. Um, obviously I do not do a full genome sequencing because even though the prices have, have come down, you know, you're still looking at the region of a thousand dollars. And also as you said, um, you know, I, I'm a clinician rather than a researcher. So <clears throat> having that level of information at this stage would would not be A useful to me and B I wouldn't know how to interpret it. So I Focus my uh, testing on um, genetic sequencing that looks at a handful of uh, genetic variants or SNPs, Mm -hmm. which have been shown to increase. Uh, susceptibility to um, either the uh, the speeding up or the slowing down of specific biochemical pathways. And my particular area of interest is related to uh, neurotransmitter pathways and um, energy production.
0: All right. So this involves the movement from uh, care of sick people to high performance, and using these are technologies that help you do that transition. Yes, absolutely. So tell yes. me, what are, what do you tend to rely on? And that We have the classic SNPs that everyone knows, the MTHFR has become almost a mm-hmm. celebrity all by itself these days, mm. and a lot of newbies in this field tend to go for, well, there's the SNP and that explains everything, which it doesn't, obviously. But yeah. what do you choose out of all of the... Snips out of all of the information that you have available in that transfer from patient care to high performance. What's made the grade? What's crossed that boundary for you? Well-
1: interestingly um whether working in the realm of high performance or or you know very sick people at the end of the day i do believe that you know performance is a, an aspect of optimal well-being you cannot have high performance if you are you know tired not sleeping well sick not digesting
0: right.
1: um very well so if, if you like um you know the tools are the same it's just that the interpretation is uh, uh is slightly different um In terms of the, uh, you know, perhaps specific uh, markers I look at, I I do do genetic profiling, but uh, in my opinion, presently, nothing beats the humble blood test. And so, um, you know, I often have um, high-performing clients who've heard of genetics and very interested in finding out more about themselves. And for me, it's very important to explain that just having a genetic variant really doesn't mean anything without understanding whether that gene is actually expressing or not. and that in a way, you know family history, medical history, um, you know present levels of you know blood test results uh, and combining that with um, looking at the diet, the lifestyle is, is really more you know in a way almost more valuable. yeah however, um, understanding those genetic susceptibilities, I think, is is useful in the sense that particularly once we have addressed um, the, the, the general lifestyle aspect of an individual, um, if you're not achieving specific results, then it's very useful to looking at the genetic markers. And particularly, um, you know, in terms of MTHFR or um, other SNPs, uh, like MTR, MTRR, and one of my favourites is tcm transport 2 transporter cobalamin 2 very much linked to someone's ability to withstand stress, right. uh, so having good levels of resilience and having good cognitive functions because potentially they <clears throat> have a really much increased susceptibility to vision and visual deficiencies. Yep. Um, and so, a good
0: response and, to treatment, I would imagine, as well, that if you've identified that, the, the B12, for example, works really well on some people and other people, it doesn't touch the sides.
1: No, exactly. And that's why um, it, it's really important, I think, to spread the message that, um, you know, you, you cannot do functional medicine by numbers. So just just knowing that someone um, is homozygous for MTHFR C6770 does not, should not inform Ninety uh, percent of your strategy, right. of your treatment strategy, you can predict
0: homocysteine uh, from it, but you can't predict much else, can you?
1: Possibly, and not, and, and yet, n- not even that. So, so MCHFR, you know, uh, may not, you know, does not have a, a direct impact on homocysteine, and also someone who has high levels of oxidative stress or a high heavy metal burden um, may still present with very low oh. levels of homocysteine. So, so the, the, I think the message that needs to go out there is that, it to me, is, is twofold. And having just come back from the uh, methylation summit in Sydney, I, I think it's really important to bring home the message that, yes, we now have this tool, but this is a, this is a tool among many. Mm. Um, it is useful. However, um, it doesn't mean that we should be doing, again, functional medicine by numbers, particularly because <clears throat> messing with methylation can actually be dangerous. Yes. Yeah? And when taking megadoses of either methylfolate or other methyl donors, we don't actually know, we don't know exactly in the body where these extra methyl donors are going to are going to go. And so I I really I, I like to always, you know, bring out this message of caution because when you start actually looking at DNA methylation uh in the realm of genetics, you do understand that both hypo and hypermethylation can actually initiate yeah. So I think that it's really important to do all the other things first and removing the blocks that are perhaps increasing someone's level of chronic inflammation, stress, oxidative stress, um, all the toxic and burdens, you know, uh, lack of nutrients, um, living their lifestyle, their sleep weight cycles, not according to their specific chronotype. All these things will have a huge impact, both on someone's health and someone's performance. And then you can start tweaking and getting into that 1% um, by introducing, you know, nutrigenomic uh, nutrients. But again, just just doing that cautiously. Because I think that this is an emerging field and um, we, we don't know enough to keep pushing and pushing these biochemical pathways. Uh, we don't have the data yet to know that it is safe in the long
0: run. There's there's the opportunity always to manage the methyl, remembering that the person that we see, typically maybe an adult, they've survived with those genes all of their life. So they present, adapted to whatever their genetics are, managing it however they do. And some of that's a mystery to us. A lot of the opportunities for dietary management seem to be forgotten. We get so enthused about, we found a SNP, we know how to get around that that we that, that we do race in with highly potent you know methionine massive doses yeah. of b12 and over reverend the person or bring them down in a way which is entirely unpredictable whereas with foods oh. it seems not to happen as much that if you can manage the gut and the diet it's a safer slower and more profound way of achieving change I I don't yeah, know if that's your ab- finding. Absolutely,
1: I, I really agree with that. And uh, and look, absolutely, in some cases um, of uh, severe mental he- illness, we do need to um, yeah. intervene, you know, quite heavily, quite quickly. Um, but uh, uh, generally speaking, I I find, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, I actually had a client presented um, to me with psychosis, and the psychosis was actually induced by methylfolate. So right. they had been, you know, in, in quotes, diagnosed with NTHFR um, homozygosity and had been um, prescribed the formulation with high levels of methylfolate, and, um, and, and this person progressively got worse and worse and worse. And um, as soon as we removed that formulation, you know, within 24 hours, it started to feel better. Yes. So, so I, I absolutely agree with you. I think that diet is, is important. And look, sometimes that is probably the most difficult conversation I have with my clients. So I you know, I work with very, very busy individuals who also travel a lot and um <clears throat> they don't have the time to, you know, cook their food. So that that's a big consideration for for them because um you know they're not gonna have the time to be at home and um, you know, ferment their own sauerkraut and yes. make their own soba noodles. And so, it, but it, I even within that, um, there is so much dietary guidance that we can give and help someone understand, for example, if they have a susceptibility to 70% reduced. Um, levels of the NTPHRI enzyme, meaning they need seventy percent more active folate in their right. diet. What does this look like? You know, if they're eating out, well, you know, can they order a side salad with every meal that they have? Yeah. Can they swap their morning, um, you know, macca's on the way to work with the green smoothie, for example, and yeah. and then making them, you know, helping them understand that. Um, you know that gene and that process of methylation is also going to be impacted by the levels of stress. So, um, so let's talk about you know stress management. Let's talk about sleep hygiene. And these things sound really boring and they're not very sexy. I know. <laughs> but you know they make such a huge difference. And you would know that because you you know you've been working for a very long time in in your don't overstretch it there.
0: Not that long. <laughs> <laughs> I keep getting called a grandfather of various things. I don't. I don't want to head down that line. But I have. I have visited the places you mentioned. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But looking, we're looking good for it. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So, wait for a long time. We're looking good for it. Um, so, so you know that sometimes you know, especially uh, when patient have been sick for a long time, they kind of almost don't want to hear these things. Yeah. yeah. They want a the magic bullet, and in my experience, there is no magic bullet um what what the there is often is uh, a, a lack of accurate diagnosing and it is very complex because often we're talking yeah. about multiple diagnoses and an understanding how one diagnosis then can impact uh, all sorts of other biochemical pathways and so um, I um having experienced severe chronic illness in the past myself, I, I, I don't blame these people because I know that we want answers. You know, when you feel really unwell or you're very tired or you can't think properly, you do want um you want answers and you want them quickly. But yes. in my experience there really isn't a one size Fits all, and especially for very complex cases, it really takes time to unravel. You're literally looking at unraveling like a yarn of wool, and first and foremost, you're trying to find the 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 beginning of the thread, yes, so that you can slowly start to uh, to unwind it.
0: We've created that expectation, though, haven't we? Medicine, the miracle of medicine, is that there will be a pill for everything. And we don't go back to our Hippocratic roots of the diet, the lifestyle, the sleeping, you know, they let the food be your medicine. I find it both with people wanting to improve performance and people who are really sick that they're interested in all of these, but they want something to make a move, something to make a visible move, make me feel better, Uh give me something. And if you just move simply then back to, well, here's how we do sleep management, here's, how, here's the dietary changes, here's the salads right. you need to eat, the g- eyes glaze over it, oh, you know, that's too hard. Mm. So yeah. is there an easy, is there something a practitioner, we as practitioners can take as an easy entry point where people can see a benefit fairly quickly? And be encouraged yes. to go on to do more?
1: I personally think that information is key. And I talk about the difference between competence and performance. So I was recently writing an article about um, uh, sleep quality. Okay, Now, in probably seven times out of 10, um, my patients generally tell me that they're a good sleeper. Now, being a good sleeper, for example, doesn't mean you're a competent sleeper. And by this, I mean you might feel that you you're sleeping okay, but you actually don't know whether your sleep architecture is right. You don't know if you've got sleep apnea. Um, you don't know whether you're having enough, um, uh, you know, REM to non-REM cycles per night. So, so we make a lot of assumptions. Yeah. And I think that um, because of the explosion of um, you know blogs and the interest of the media in general well-being, people feel that they know this stuff. But when you actually start drilling down and explain to them, so showing them a genetic report, showing them the blood test and bringing it all together and relating that to their family history of depression or anxiety, I think that you have a much better case for them really understanding that perhaps even those 1% changes you're asking them to make in their lifestyle can have a huge impact. Okay. Um, so I think that as practitioners we need to set ourselves up above the um, you know, facile um spreading of information about well being that is out there yes. and bring the highest level of evidence that we have and relating that to the individual in front of us and their current level of pain. Um now I think that, you know, if you have someone who's absolutely struggling you know, with sleep or whatever gut issues, yeah, absolutely, we do need to um, offer some strategies that offer symptomatic relief first and foremost because if you don't start reducing someone's pain straight away, yeah. you don't have um, a, a convert and, and a champion of what you do. So my approach is that first and foremost, yeah, we, we're going to bring out the big guns. Uh, as much as possible, and try and work very quickly on whether it's symptomatic relief or quick wins. Yep. And then um, being very open and candid about the length and the, the details of the strategy, and explaining. So I, I constantly do uh, mind maps, you know, for clients, and so getting them to understand how A relates to B and C. So how their sleep might be related to. Um, their uh, gut infection or how their sleep might be related to everything they've done during the day because their sleep-wake cycle has been um, completely turned upside down compared to the chronotype. So they're eating at the wrong time. They're eating the wrong foods at the wrong time. They're exercising at the wrong time. And then giving them a stepwise um, plan as to why we need to start with this before we can then tackle uh, you know, the, the really the, the underlying cause. Yeah. And, and then keep repeating that in every session. Now, obviously, um, uh, you know, if you're a GP, I, I really feel, you know, I really, really feel for general practitioners <laughs> in this country and abroad. And um, I, I have worked and continue to work with some astounding medical. Uh, doctors and I, I, I say this because I think that there's a bit of doctor bashing that goes on in in my industry, and um, I think that um, they, you know, they are so overworked, underpaid, and under incredible time and pressure constraints. Um, I'm not talking about you know integrated GPs that choose to kind of somewhat step outside. Right. System, but I'm talking about general GPs, uh, and um, and I think you know it's incredibly difficult. You know, when you have a between an eight to fifteen minute consultation, how on earth are they supposed to be counselling patients? on, all these lifestyle things we have been talking about. It's just impossible. Yes, it does it's make a case, impossible. though,
0: for developing a team approach with others who can do that and who are trained in those areas. Because remember, we we doctors are trained in disease recognition, which can be done yes. quickly and accurately, mm. and where the tests are very precise and we know what we're talking about and the drugs are well proven, even though maybe we change our minds later on. That's a different world from the person who is chronically unwell or looking to improve performance or looking to be better in their health. Mm -hmm. And we often try and shoehorn that into a medical consultation. I think we may be discovering it's inappropriate, but it's always lovely if you could give advice to a, a patient as a doctor to say, well, look, here's how we're going to improve sleep, or here's the specifics of the diet. Then we run out of time and we need partners like yourself to be able to hand that off to, to be able to say, and that is better handled by someone who can put in the time, effort, energy to go through the details. And I think the team approach might just be emerging even in general practice at the moment.
1: I, I think so. And I think that even as um, you know, the big data technology that we were talking about earlier improves and uh, becomes more relevant for clinical practice, I think there will always be space for um, a team-centric approach because mm. just just having results through big data doesn't matter how accurate they are. It's what you were saying. People um, still have to be motivated to implement the strategies. Yeah. So you could, you could have the most accurate diagnosis ever, but the person still has to take either the medicine or make dietary changes, lifestyle changes. So I think that that I hope that that is
0: the future of uh, of medicine. Well, I, I suspect there might be two branches to medicine in the future. The The branch of what we have always done, which is try and prevent a patient falling off the edge with a disease by being a good medical doctor. And then the second job is having done that, for that person and for their family, expanding it further so that the next and the next and the next time do not happen. And I think the second job is, in fact, the more difficult of the two. Recognizing disease is pretty easy when you're well trained. And treating it is very, very, um, shall I say, it's fulfilling because the person gets better from their proximate illness right on the spot very quickly and doctors wipe their hands and say, miracle achieved. But the real miracle is don't do it again and again. If you have a heart attack, don't imagine that your bypass has cured you of the reasons for your heart attack. So there's a job to be done. When When we move down that path, do you see big data from what you've learned, you know, Stanford and elsewhere, do you see big data being able to be pushed into the healthcare consultation to change practice in a way that's practically useful Say in the next five years, ten years, do you have a, a a feeling about how quickly we're moving to something useful there?
1: Yes, I think five years for sure. You do. Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely, and uh, uh, and I think that we are going to be moving more and more towards um, you know distant consultations and uh, and some consultations also uh, being conducted by AI.
0: So that there'll be inputs from the big data that actually make it more sensible for both, say, doctor or naturopath and the patient or client before them?
1: Uh, Yes, absolutely. And I also think that um, much diagnosing will be done by robots in the future.
0: I hope they're Um, kind to us. (laughs) (laughs)
1: i think you know this is a question that affects not just the medical profession but affects pretty much everyone at large right. and, um, and and there are changes afoot that are going to completely revolutionize um, the, the the face of the working world as we as we know it. Um, does that mean that we're all going to be out of jobs no i don't think so i think that there is i think that just things are going to to change in the sense that the more technical side of things, Uh, in terms of more straightforward straightforward diagnosing is going to be done by artificial intelligence. Um, But um, I think that when it comes to um, uh, dealing with patients, uh, I think that we're still a long way off in terms of developing the kind of bedside manner and um, empathetic support that uh, humans really crave, and particularly in a world where we are becoming more and more connected, yet more and more isolated through the use of um, uh, technology, Uh, I think that uh, professionals that can develop that side of things will always do well.
0: I'm going to ask you a difficult question. So you cover two broad areas that there is a high crossover. One is the sick person who's wanting to get back to basic levels of reasonable health and the others are the higher performers who are looking to optimise and improve their, their kind of edge capabilities. Is there a common advice or a piece of common practical advice you could give us as practitioners about what has paid off best to both achieve high performance and to bring people back from illness into a reasonable state of health?
1: Uh, I think first and foremost, for for practitioners who are interested um, in moving into the area of high performance, is that I think, first of all, um, you need to cut your teeth on the really difficult and complex cases. Because <laughs> to understand the high performance, the high performance, you have to understand the worst performance. Right. Um, and uh, it is something that I really firmly uh, believe in because that gives you an incredible knowledge at biochemical level of what creates cognitive performance, what what improves working memory, what optimizes um, mitochondrial health for then for optimal energy. Um, what constitutes, you know, how do you um, how do you take a microbiome that's completely impoverished and make it the best possible microbiome for that person? So, if you like, they they are polar opposites, but they are opposites on the same spectrum, mm-hmm. and so you can't have one without the other.
0: So would would that mean the gut is preeminent in that area? That if you get gut digestion and health. That that leads the way or is the gut a downstream thing that we we there is something we should have done before? Do we medically do we start to move away from antibiotics and pay attention to birthing? Is there are there origins that you would if you had a magic wand could change?
1: That's a really difficult question because you're kind of almost asking me, you know, what do I think is the most important organ system in the body? <laughs>
0: Beth, that's <laughs>
1: and that's you know, And, um, you know, if I asked the psychiatrist, uh, you know, could you have studied psychiatry without doing your medical training, the answer would be probably no. Um, so I think you need to have um, a, an understanding of the fact that we are not separate body parts and we are one continuum. So um, having good knowledge of the microbiome should not preclude having good knowledge of right. the nervous system because they all impact each other. Um, but then within that, absolutely, you know, um, specialisations are, are are useful, um, and um, and then it means that you end up attracting a certain kind of uh, of patient or client who uh, has perhaps more need in that particular area. But I think particularly as a you know as a naturopath and nutritionist, sort of my um, my education in this field, just like that of, of my peers has always been with first and foremost understanding the system rather than just understanding the unique part right. um and and thinking how a plus b you know equals you know d it's really really important so um constantly thinking okay what what is this person microbiome going to be doing now, and how is this affecting their mental health how is this then um, you know, affecting their um, immune response A- and and always thinking in terms of that whole.
0: Right. So it is truly personalized. There's no, There's no kind of one single foundation. You pay attention to the history, you take the data that you can get, and then each individual has their own path back to either optimum health or reasonable health from illness. So There is no magic. Is that what you were saying?
1: That is my mantra. There is no magic. I have no magic wand. I have a brain and a lot of clinical experience. And, And I absolutely firmly believe that there is no one diet fits all. For example so i i do not put uh, all of my clients on a gluten-free dairy-free diet i don't put everybody on a ketogenic diet um i don't put everybody on a you know high-grain diet it has to be completely individualized and while we have you know epidemiological data to look at for example the benefits of the mediterranean diet you know within that we need to also consider, you know, genetics. So, you know, uh, some, some people who have specific, specific um, you know, uh, genetic haplotypes will not do well on even high levels of olive oil, for example. So, uh, and then what's their microbiome like? You know, do they have a microbiome that currently looks like they have uh, an overgrowth of bacteria that love um, fats? Uh, so then you know even though they need to lose weight putting them on a ketogenic diet may help them lose weight but by the same token what is that doing to that microbiome Um, so everything has to be pondered and considered. And and I have previously got in trouble for writing blogs dismissing some of these famous diets, and I I really stand by the evidence I see in clinic. When you do microbiome testing on people who have, um, you know, removed all starches from their diet, they invariably have the worst microbial diversity I've ever seen, uh, including, you know, young children. And despite eating you know, kilos of sauerkraut and, um, you know, and and fermented products. So we have to be judicious and we have to remember that any kind of prescription we give, including dietary prescription, potentially can have uh, a long-term bearing on that person's wellness as well as lifespan in years to come. So um, I think, you know, first do no harm. And, um, you know, if you are uh, making prescriptions Um, without really knowing the full picture, then just, you know, we have to be honest and say, this is the evidence we have for this right now. Um, And let's see if this this helps you. We're going to keep monitoring your biomarkers and your microbiome and see see how we progress. But um, making blanket statements about, you know, grains are bad, legumes are bad, you should be on a high fat diet. I think is actually very
0: harmful. It's good for getting on the bestseller list, making messages over simple seems to be something that uh, a lot of of high-profile people can do. But the reality at the practitioner level for all of us is you delve into the individual story. And it sounds to me like what you do is you use your technologies as a map, not as a, a kind of a prescription or a guideline, but as a map to know where the weak points are, where the strong points are, and then play them out one by one
1: yeah I love that I'm going to reuse that I use a map that's really really nice and you have um, really summarized very well the um, uh, the essence of uh, of what I do and sometimes you know what you were saying about some high-profile personalities I often wonder if, even if they are um, uh, even if they're doctors I do I often wonder whether they're still in clinical practice um, because it's just not it's just not something I have seen in 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 my practice of, of ten years that that approach ever works. Yes. Um, you know, and sure, you know, you might you might have different cohorts of people that you know generally you find have certain characteristics, and my response to that. But just just to say that everybody should be on that diet, I always think really. Are you really a clinical practitioner? Um, I
0: am sure you are right on that, that as people ascend to the heights, the dizzying heights of uh, celebrity, they leave clinical practice behind. And that touchstone for most of us as practitioners uh, is really, really important. You can get books that take an extreme view and for a few people they'll work and then you realize there's no magic in there it's hard work and you go back to that same hard work that's
1: it and that's that's exactly what it is it's hard work and i i, I will share very briefly this story of a client of mine who um so he's a high performing client very very successful business person and uh who's also very interested in meditation so he attended a, um, a one month long retreat in spain Uh, to do his, uh, uh, you know, to do a meditation retreat. And uh, as part of the retreat, uh, a couple of times a week, they would have open discussions about, um, you know, what the students were finding, um, how, how the students were finding the program. And on a particular day, two or three people commented on how uncomfortable they were finding the meditation. And at this point, the meditation teacher put his hand up to stop them speaking and said, Comfortable, whoever said that this was going to be comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> and so my client was saying that you know, the thought that we have is that things should be comfortable. We live in an era of comfort, yeah. We have ready made meals, we we have, um, you know, even TV, we can watch you know, 10 episodes of a series. At, at a click of a button, we don't have to wait for the next week's episode. Everything is about comfort. And behind that, he was telling me, the thought is that, you know, this shouldn't be uncomfortable. But whoever said that, health is not easy. We take it for granted. And it's, it's about effort. So if you want high impact, you need to put in high
0: effort. And on that note, Alessandra Edwards, it's been delightful to talk with you. Thank you very much for your insights and I hope to talk to you again.
1: Likewise. Thank you so much for your time and your insightful questions.
0: Thanks, Alessandra. Bye. All of us here at FX Medicine are excited to share with you our fantastic infographics, They're now available to purchase in high-quality poster and digital formats. To celebrate, we're running a giveaway competition where five lucky winners will win an A2 infographic of their choice. Head over to our Instagram page, at FXmedicine, where you'll find all the details on how to enter. Submissions end on Friday the 25th of October at 12pm Australian Eastern Daylight Time. Terms and conditions apply.